This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Forever. Hey, I'm Danny Lore. I am the writer of Queen of Bad Dreams, and today I'll be kind of doing a page by page of issue three. I'm really fortunate. This is my first complete miniseries uh, being published by Vault right now, and uh, there's an excellent team attached. We've got uh, Jordi Perez uh, is the line artist, uh, absolutely phenomenal to work with, uh, as is Dervla Kelly, uh, our colorist, uh, and Kim McLean, the letterer. Uh, I could not ask for a better crew of people to kind of help bring together this very weird, occasionally trippy story. The So kind of why I wanted to kind of go through this issue in particular is I think that a lot of the other issues are a little kind of, I guess, flashier, wilder. And I kind of wanted to go through what was very intentionally this almost quieter, almost more normal dead middle issue. Uh, it's a five uh, issue series, uh, if you were not already aware. Um, it introduces one of, one of, if not probably my favorite character in the story, as well as kind of ramping up a lot of the themes um, and kind of being very kind of straight up with the dynamics of this world in a way that I really enjoyed dealing with and enjoyed seeing how the rest of the team brought to life. Uh, we can kind of start, I guess, uh, with the cover. Um, both logo logo and uh, cover design is by the absolutely phenomenal Tim Daniel. Uh, if you don't know uh, who Tim is, he is probably one of the best uh, logo designers in the game uh, right now. Just every logo that he does for Vault and for um, other people's um, projects is just absolutely phenomenal. There's just such a great sense of the vibe of the story in it uh, and the way that he incorporates uh, elements of the story itself. For example, the kind of cool uh, thorny kind of vi uh, vines uh, on the side are pretty representative of 
the crowns, um, quote unquote crowns, that the uh, inspector judges wear that help power their um, power and strengthen their abilities through the course of their jobs. Um, If somehow you're just listening to this and you haven't really gotten a chance to go through the larger story itself, the inspector judges uh, exist in this world where people with psychic abilities can very frequently accidentally pull out sometimes objects, sometimes people, sometimes creatures from their dreams. And an inspector judge's job essentially is to go in, uh, track uh, them in the waking world, discover kind of what their deal is, whether they're capable of existing as independent people, or if they're purely looping into whatever they were in in the dreams, Uh, whether they are just kind of stuck in that loop and they don't have full what's called agency, um, or if they are capable of being cognizant and existing in the real world, Uh, and then deciding whether that means they're going to stay in our world, get reinserted into dreams, or sometimes if they are, say, for example, monsters that come out of nightmares, that whether they have to be uh, put down. And the entire story revolves around uh, Daher and her, and when she's assigned um, to find Ava, a figment who's escaped from the mind of Emerson, who's this like powerful politician's son. And she's kind of given the brief that Ava is super dangerous. And Ava is. Um, There's a lot of I, you know, like spy level type fighting skills and abilities that Ava has. But also very early on, Dahir begins to doubt the story that she was told about Ava and whether Ava even wants to be a danger. Um, And that's kind of where we're at when we open issue three. Um, But I kind of wanted to get into the background because what Tim has done with the logo is very much incorporate an element of the character design into it, which I think is really cool. And in addition, the um, Jordi and um, Dervla put uh, work together as well to make this cover something that references a bunch of parts of the story. Uh, what we've done so far from issues one through three is showcasing uh, main characters of the story in fashion and style and attitude that very much also reflects Dahir as an inspector judge as well. So our first issue was straight up uh, Dahir. The second was Ava putting on the inspector judge crown. And this one is our new character, um, our new character, Celine. Um, who I'll talk about in a second. She is actually the uh, young teen daughter of Dahir and her ex-wife Viv uh, in her baseball uniform, uh, but also in gear that reflects her mom's uniform while also kind of giving that vibe of this is this is her daughter, you know, uh, and I really love that. There's the reference to the baseball bat that's u- that's used by Dahir in the first issue, uh, as well as her wearing her mom's coat and having the crown uh, embedded uh, in her forehead. Um, so as we start and we open again, you see uh, 
Tim's design work right there where each character in the world kind of has their own little elements of design to the crown. But right there on that opening page, you get a version of the crown uh, within the design, which I really love. Uh, So on page one, I decided the end of issue two involves... Ava and Dahir basically getting ambushed and fighting and Dahir being like, we have to take you someplace safe. That someplace safe um, is the shelter, which we have visited a couple of times before this place, uh, before this point in the story. Um, An important element, however, which we find out pretty much immediately in the first couple of pages is that Dahir's ex-wife lives in the um, shelter. She specifically lives above it. And the shelter is specifically a place where the the figments who, um, who come out of people's dreams and are allowed to stay can find agency, but in particular uh, can find shelter, hence the name. Um, it is a safe place for them. Uh, we mention on the first page, a law called the FPA, which is part of why uh, they decide to take Ava here. However, I decided what was kind of important. So much of the story is about family and your dreams for your family and your relations to your family. And so starting this issue, actually not through the perspective of the adults involved, but Celine, uh, who is the daughter of two of the main characters and has been thus far completely uninvolved. So has no context for what's happening, except that she is in her room and she hears her parents who are already split up yelling and arguing over a woman that she's never met. Um, And Dahir, and mostly um, she hears Viv, uh, the, her parent that she lives with, um, kind of trying to lay down the law with uh, Dahir and being like, you can't, you can't keep treating this like this is your house when we haven't been together for uh, years. I think uh, I think they haven't been together for about twelve years at this point. Um, so uh, it's been it's been a bit. Uh, no, they've been divorced five years. I have like this whole sheet of math. I am very bad at math, um, which is very funny because some of the things. Um, in this story and the timeline become important kind of around the math of like when Dahir and Viv met versus when they got married. Um, Or well, it's important to me, even if you don't necessarily see the numbers on the page and I kind of have to keep it consistent. So what I actually do in times like that while I'm working on the project is I've got a post-it note or something that has those notes. So I've had a single post-it about the math of their relationship just stuck on my wall uh, for quite a while now. Um, and that's kind of how I keep in track because honestly, if you expected me to keep numbers in my head, um, I use words. I don't use numbers. Um, one of the things I particularly love about this page, um, is kind of what happens when you're working in comics as opposed to prose. Cause I kind of do both, um, which is that you can give kind of a short description to an artist and kind of go back and forth and it becomes something uh, kind of really sweet and delicate. And one of the ways that this happens from the first page here is that I really wanted to show who this family was, but through 
the pictures that are on the walls. So it, for me, I love how the first picture that you really see in panel two, as uh, Celine comes, uh, goes down the hall, um, I did not, I don't think I actually listed this one in like my script, but it's her parents getting married, you know, and this happier time. Um, and then you also get uh, throughout, you get uh, baby pictures, the um, pictures of uh, Celine on sports teams getting messy and dirty, just really like being a, a teenager. And it's important because it's such a different contrast um, to Ava. Um, that was really important to me in this story, um, as you'll find out as I kind of flip through the pages, that Ava's, Ava and Celine have shared traits uh, and shared things in common. And it's what is important is the support they got. And so the visuals of the support of the support and this loving family, even if they're not together, was really important um, for me to show. Um, so at the end of page one, yes, we're only at uh, page one, my apologies. Um, we get to see Celine come in um, to the middle of the argument, just seeing these women here, um, her two parents and Ava, who she's never seen. And that's very much at the point where we, she misunderstands the whole situation and it is a difficult thing for her because obviously her parents are arguing and there's this other grown woman involved and she makes the mistake of thinking that this is Dahir's new girlfriend or new woman in her life. And obviously this for a young teenager is a very almost like very, it's a, it's a traumatic way to find out, you know? Um, And that's what she's processing. And at the same time, we see, um, we go back to Viv's captions. Um, so Viv, um, Dahir's ex-wife, narrates the majority of Queen of Bad Dreams. Uh, this kind of gives you a narrator who knows the protagonist Dahir significantly better than I think Dahir wants wants to accept or understand. Um, because she's been through this woman at her best and at through her worst and they still love each other deeply. They just haven't been able to make it work um, in good in strong part because of Dahir's job. And it was very interesting because I think the very first draft of this script, I think Dahir, I think was the narrator. Um, And with talking with uh, Adrian, Adrian Wassel from vault, who's just the most, phenomenal editor to have on my first uh, book. We've uh, really had to get get to have a lot of really interesting conversations, a lot of which tied in deeply to this issue in particular. Um, and we wanted to find, as like we were discussing, we decided we wanted to find a different voice for the narrator, something that um, gives you more options than necessarily the the protagonist, because there's a lot of times where you have a narrator's voice And if it's the protagonist, then you have to question whether whether their perspective is the right perspective to tell, you know, Um, and also then whether, okay, is this caption necessary as a caption or should they just be saying it in a scene? Uh, We went through a couple of different options. Uh, There is a version of script pages that I will never show anyone, uh, I think, in which uh, West told the story. 
And while I love West, they weren't quite the right person to tell it because um, I think that they are a little bit, they're too, men- they're too much of a mentor. Um, and this is just one of those things that you kind of have to think through when you're, you should make a, if you're going to have a narrator who has like a literal specific caption voice, because that's something that maybe, that not every comic needs, right? Sometimes you can just tell the story without that voice. If you're going to do it, you have to make conscious choices throughout each step of the process. Why, why am I choosing this voice? Why is this person the important person to tell the story? And so what we ended up doing um, with it being Viv is it gave us a really interesting angle because then it seemed very natural that Viv is telling the story to Celine at a later date. Uh, both the parts that she was there for from Viv's own perspective and the parts that she wasn't. Um, I kind of like, I kind of like the vibe, the idea that since this has happened, Viv has maybe told it to her a few different times, but it's that kind of thing where it's such an important moment in your life and in your family's life that you keep asking for the retell. And each time you tell it uh, or it gets told to you, you ask about another detail, another part, and you're trying to put together what parts of the story change over time, um, you know, due to just memory being memory versus what you remember correct, like what you remember versus what your mother remembers, you know? Um, and because so much of this issue is involves Celine, I got a chance to really have Viv wrestle with the fact that that is who she's telling the story to, um, that she, gets to admit to her daughter who is getting older. Um, we don't establish how old Celine is when she's being told the story, but um, that she gets to be honest about what being a parent to Celine is and what that means to her um, and what giving Celine support means versus the struggles of being a mother doesn't mean that you're not a a person with your own uh, reactions. And page two especially is Viv wrestling with that, that as a mom, uh, what we want for you to, to be safe, be have a normal life and to everything about what's happening and interferes with that. And it makes Viv angry, but there's only so much anger that she feels comfortable showing in front of her daughter, because again, they, they are co-parents, you know, and, that kind of interaction uh, between Viv and Dehair is such a messy place for Celine. So then uh, Dehair comes in and kind of has a, you know, please believe me, like I would come and sit with you and tell you if I was dating somebody new kind of conversation. Um, I've, I remember after my parents split, um, having moments like this, having moments both where it was my, parents new partner versus it wasn't and I was just misunderstanding versus you know whether it was a surprise to me versus um whether they sat me down and had the conversation and it every one of those conversations hurt but were necessary in different ways and I kind of really wanted to do that here that was one of the reasons why I decided to start this story with two adult parents of like divorced parents uh, of a teenage girl. Um, so as we go on on page four, 
uh, we get a bit again of the clash between the relationship between um, Dahir and Viv being exes versus Dahir and Viv being Celine's parents, um, where Viv in the captions is like, you know, this, I, I don't talk badly about your mom. You know, like, I know that I, you know, like, I try really hard to be really great and, you know, keep my emotions about the divorce away from you, but that's impossible. Um, uh, Adrian and I talked about this a lot, um, just the, that kind of moment of, you can't hide it. You, th- you think you can, and it's really painful and, and difficult for everyone involved. Um, as we go on, um, this issue in particular wrestles with motherhood on, on multiple levels. And so showing Dahir and Viv messing up and this misunderstanding and then seeing how Dahir comes in and still tries to take care of Celine was really important to me as a place to start here. You know, um, that these are parents who have messed up, but that doesn't mean that they're bad parents. Um, and also you get the first hint to kind of uh, Celine's uh, backstory here when obviously she knows what her mother does. She knows that Dahir deals with dreams and figments and she is afraid of Ava kind of being a new figment that may have come from her mother's mind, uh, which we find out a little bit later why that's a worry. Um, again, we've got, uh, we, so we kind of transfer, uh, on page five to Viv and Ava and Viv is doing her best to be angry at Dahir, but at not at the victim of the situation at Ava. And it's a complicated situation because in a lot of ways, Ava immediately reminds Celine, uh, her of Celine. Uh, Ava is an adult, but she's a little bit younger um, than Viv. And so Viv doesn't, Viv is still trying to take care of her as well. Um, I really love this uh, shot right here. It's just kind of simple, but it's uh, Ava's reflection in the glass. uh, Just, it's a lot about, here is one of those moments of like, we, we talk about Ava and, and choice. So Ava discovers that the Figment Protection Act, the FPA that was mentioned earlier, means that the shelter is a sanctuary place. Uh, figments can be questioned there, but they can't be dragged back to the Morphean a- Annex, anything like that. Uh, Viv is essentially a social worker uh, for specifically for figments and an advocate. So that's why while they're trying to figure out what's going on, uh, Dahir is like, you'll be safe here. And Ava is just like, so I could have just been here and it would have been fine. But as Viv points out, that means that she wouldn't, she still wouldn't be free. You know, that she wouldn't, that if they didn't deal with the current situation, she would just be stuck there. And is that really what she wants to be doing with herself? Uh, they kind of go over a little bit more of the same uh, on the next page where they're talking about um, helping figments, you know, just kind of figure out who and what they are um, in our world and all like the weird 
paperwork and therapy stuff that that might deal with. Because one of the the things for me, this started out as like a weird kind of short story when I originally conceived of this. Um, And the nice thing about being able to make it into a comic is that you can deal, you can have more world building, you have more space. And the truth of the matter is, is that if figments were real, if we were dealing with people who exit dreams, there's a bureaucracy around that. And there's so much of the story is about the fact that there is the bureaucracy of that. And then there is the trauma of that. Um, And kind of how that parallels how much women um, and especially women of color are allowed to navigate our world. Um, And I really wanted to establish this world, even when you have this action conspiracy drama story on top of this, this very kind of action story, that there are structures in place to support them. Because I think it's very easy to make a cool what if world um, and then not go, okay, cool. But what happens when a figment is sitting there traumatized because this world is so much different than theirs? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, and even if and when I can't go into that very heavily, I wanted to make it clear that that existed in this world. Um, then uh, at the end of page six, um, Dahir gets a call um, from West uh, and we pivot out of this scene. Um, this is one of those fun moments where I love... I love when I kind of basically describe a scene and give Jordy kind of maybe one or two modern references or like contemporary references. Uh, and then from there, Jordy and uh, really uh, extrapolates a really cool f- futuristic version of that. So here um, I wanted to do a futuristic um, uh, like country club. Uh, the uh, They're about to go meet uh, Emerson because he has the resources and power that he can call up their bosses and say, I want to talk to them right now, which Dahir is very, very unhappy about because there's other work that she could be doing. Um, and I really love kind of the design that Jordy brought to this, um, this the kind of elegant um, opening to it. Uh, and it was really important to me also as you go through uh, to notice that there aren't many background people that you see here, but it was really important that none of them are figments and none of them are darker skinned. Um, Dahir and West are significantly darker and different from the people who are just sitting and relaxing or even the people who are working there. Um, I wanted to make it very clear who is allowed in and who wasn't um, immediately that Emerson has the money and resources to sit and chill in a place where only waking world people get to go. No figments allowed. And what that really means about everybody who walks inside there. 
Um, and also what that kind of means in terms of the, the class situation in the world. Uh, you also have a little bit of uh, talking about how West, how they have already kind of been given some of the investigatory workload that's supposed to be Dahir's in that um, Dahir wanted to question the figments that attacked them in the last issue. But uh, it was basically given to West um, and kind of get, you get hints that West, uh, who is non-binary, if it was not clear, um, that they, that, that they know that Dahir is breaking the rules. They, they've known Dahir for a very long time and they, they can see that something's up and they're not going to ask questions because that gets them directly involved and it might be something they have to report, but they're not stupid. Uh, they are trying to, and they do this a lot because West is very much a mentor to Dahir, to warn them about the political game that they have to play as uh, inspectors and as being part of the Morphean Annex, especially when Emerson is the son of one of the most powerful uh, councilwomen in the city. Uh, and then on page eight, specifically, we open in to see Emerson uh, and... Uh, Miss Meadows. Um, again, it was very intentional. Uh, the tennis references, uh, that kind of class kind of like indicators uh, with them. Uh, but also, I really like this kind of like half two thirds paid splash in particular, because if I remember correctly, um, one of the references I really wanted for this is I don't know if anyone listening has watched Layer Cake before. Uh, Layer Cake is one of my absolutely fa- f- absolute favorite movies. Um, but like the big high goal, like the, the biggest indicator of wealth and power is whoever's kind of sitting at the head of the table at like in these couple of like country club scenes and that feel of opening in to that kind of wealth and the private room in the country club, you know, like that kind of beat and moment. Um, and especially since for Emerson, this is kind of him marking territory. Uh, everything is intentional in this scene for him until he loses control of it um, to reassure himself that he is in charge and he has the power, but and also that uh, to remind the inspector judges involved. Um, one of the first things he does here is um, his partner, uh, Miss Meadows uh, brings up tennis and they start talking about sports and who played what uh, and um, the very looking down on like the city university when Wes mentions um, that they played there so it's like oh you played tennis which threw us off a little bit but not at any place that's worth playing is kind of like their tone uh, this entire scene for me so the next couple of pages let me yet yeah, go back, is the next couple of pages then proceed to swap back and forth between the country club and back at home uh, with Celine and Ava. And at the first time I wrote this scene, it was like one of the first drafts, the entire scene took place someplace completely different. It wasn't at the country club at all. Uh, Might have been back at the annex, actually. Um, but one of the 
really important things is to make sure that the environment in any scene is important, that it's not just, well, I needed a place for this to to happen in, so I just picked a place. Um, So the country club represents so much more than just another encounter at the annex. Um, It represents, like I said, Emerson trying to play that game of chess, trying to be in control uh, but also the fact that that means he needs that control. He needs to show it off. And it's really interesting for me because when I started writing this scene and kind of fills in between, uh, especially in 10 and 11, is it was a lot of the editing of the dialogue of this scene happened in conjunction with that big university scandal and like the pay for um test scores and placement stuff and it just it happened and then suddenly all my struggles with where this was going to happen and how emerson was going to act just very much kind of like vanished i it was just very clear almost within like 10 minutes of hearing because i'm like that's who emerson is right emerson is this very rich man whose ego power confidence and entitlement all comes from his mother's name. It all comes from who his family is. And it's very intentional that we get no indication that in this story that he's he's done anything to establish himself. We never hear what he does professionally. Uh, we never hear, you know, that he has his own business. Um, we get to see his dreams uh, in earlier issues where he fancies himself like a future, you know, like, basically a future president, you know, a Kennedy type. Um, but that's only in his imagination. And everything about this scene is about that dude, is about the fact that not to this extreme, obviously, but I've had this conversation with this guy who has to prove to himself that the person that he knows is not even necessarily poor, but less rich than he is, is not as good as he is. Um, and that kind of became the Axton University, like kind of, it's not quite a gag, but it, it is, it is. Um, because the fact, like on one page, he says Axton, what is it? Three, four times in one book. Uh, bubble, he even refers to himself as an Axton person like twice. Kind of the idea that this is his identity and his identity is better than yours. Um, But at the same time, we have this um, parallel to back at home, Ava going back to remember that wall of pictures uh, and seeing and getting to talk to Celine one-on-one without the parents there for a bit and seeing Celine's perspective of Dahir as a parent and how protective Dahir is um, and how much the two of them are involved in each other's lives. Um, But it also, at the same time, gives Dahir this kind of moment to be able to snap back. Um, She lets Emerson kind of go on on how he's so much better because he's an Axton man and he did all of this and he's so much better. Um... But then, as it turns out, she went there. She went to Axton and she got full ride scholarships uh, off of sports and academics. And she was older than him. So also 
he didn't like he can't even use the usual like well my family paid for you um kind of defensive retort um and this was a weird kind of moment to write for me because I don't I wanted to give Dahir that punch moment um pardon the pun you'll see why that's a pun later um but I wanted to give her that moment, that quip of being like, no, I am better than you, but it's really important for me to kind of also state that I don't necessarily think she needed to be all the things that she listed here in order to be worthy in this scene. Um, That it gives her that moment of really kind of like crushing Emerson, but she is still who she is and she's still a better person regardless. and part of the way that I wanted to show that is in the is in the story that Celine is telling to Ava, which kind of serves multiple purposes. In that, um, what makes her better is how she loves and protects her family, um, how much she cares about people, and how she and Celine just really do have that connection, and kind of having Ava. St- everyone in this story are in these pages really are reckoning with their relationship to parents in a certain way Celine obviously directly with Dahir and Viv um, Dahir as a mother uh, Emerson as a son of this powerful woman who we have no real evidence they have like a real connection aside from you are part of this family line and then Ava who's hearing all of this and for her she's literally never had family um and not even she never even got like rustling over like not having known her family she just came into existence um with basically a a mission statement and now she suddenly doesn't even have that so hearing these stories of like a teenager being protected by their by their mother are wild to her. She's, she doesn't understand what that feels like. Um, and that was really important to me because if she s- suddenly all, so many of the, the chains metaphorically uh, are off of Ava, right? She's out of Emerson's dreams. She has agency. She can make choices. Um, but she's starting to hear about other people making choices and what kind of choices they've had. And imagine never having only having a single door your entire life to go through and then suddenly having a hundred to choose from. Um, And this is one of the reasons why so much of this issue is quiet because so much of this issue is Ava realizing how many doors she has in front of her, if, which she would not be able to do if she was on the run in this issue. The other two issues have her fighting, have her running, and there's really, there's limited choices for her in where she can go in those. But here, in the quiet, she's she's hearing all of this, and it it makes it has a profound effect on her. Um, and so Emerson, at the same time, is losing control of the situation because Dahir is not remotely intimidated by him, uh, for good and for ill. Um, so you know she notices that um, Miss Meadows is his fiance. Um, And this is important because I did this intentionally dealing with the fact that Ava was always going to be a black woman, right? She was always going to represent 
that story of being forced by white supremacy and toxic masculinity into this very specific bubble. And I very intentionally had the implication of Dahir realizing that Emerson treats Ava like the other woman, um, like he wants to force her into having an affair type relationship, uh, which we got into in issue two when we get into her backstory and she's very much, oh, she knew for a very long time was protecting and loving him because she had nothing else in her life. Uh, and I very much wanted Emerson to know that Dahir knows that and that she's not gonna let that continue. Um, which is really great because this kind of all coalesces into a moment um, where in Celine's story, uh, she's being bullied on uh, the baseball diamond. And when Ava asks why, why they didn't think that she belonged at the same time that in this other scene, Emerson is offended at the idea that Dahir is confident that she belonged at Axton, that she belongs at her job uh, in the world that exists around her. We get the truth about um, Celine's backstory which is that Celine herself is a figment. Uh, but unlike a lot of figments, um, when, Di- when she um, popped out of Dahir's dreams, she was, an, she was a baby. Um, and so she has this singular experience uh, where she is a figment, but she was raised from a child and she's, so, she nev- so she's, she exists in the middle of those two worlds. She exists as their child who has only known the waking world. Um, And this perfect dream uh, finish of their family, you know? And it's great because sometimes she's a little rude. She doesn't, you know, she's a teenager who, you know, is talking here and she's like, I have a bunch of hobbies, but like my parents made me do a bunch of stuff and I don't really know. And like, She's never established as being a perfect child, you know? Like, that was really important to me, too. That she's, her existence, her being, her being part of Viv and Dahir's life is their dream. Um, that's also why Celine earlier uh, is like, please tell me that Ava's not another dream of yours that I didn't know about, because that would be really ho- hurtful, you know? It transitioned from the, oh, I thought that she was your new young girlfriend to, oh, did you have another child that you didn't tell me about? And like, it's all these layers. And it sounds like I'm saying a whole lot at once, and that's kind of intentional because that's the speed that it's coming at Ava in this scene. At the same time that, like, Celine doesn't realize it because she's a kid who's just sharing her life and she doesn't really know the details of Ava's yet. Um, And Ava, when she's recounting her life, she was never a baby. She showed up in Emerson's dreams as a young kid. And then when he got older, she was older suddenly. And then she kept getting older as he got older, right? Just like hop, skipping, jumpings, never having school, family, friends, just this constant defending of him. And now this is the moment where she realizes that there's so much time in the future for her that Celine has had all this time so far. And what does that mean for her as a figment at the same time that Emerson is using all of that information, that backstory to come at Dahir? You know, these were very intentionally interlinked stories. Um, 
parallel scenes are very difficult to kind of wrangle, uh, figuring out exactly what line stops when and how they flow into each other and what you need to repeat on the different pages. Um, and so it was really important that like D Ava's scenes kind of like slow down and then you have this intensity of scene uh, back at the country club. Um, and so Dahir calls Emerson out on his bullshit. Um, on the fact that she knows that he's full of crap and that she, she doesn't respect him because she he states as such that he doesn't consider any of these figments human beings or individuals. Um, and he turns that around on her and uses her daughter against her and insults her. And it is very intentionally... Um, calling back to a racist or sexist or homophobic kind of like or transphobic kind of hurled insult or an ableist one um, because that's who he is um, he is the sort of person that any of them would be that any person who is not exactly him that does not have him and his mother's bank account is lesser um, and he implies that none of what Dahir loves is real and doesn't matter, which leads me to... So very often... So page 16 and 17 are the point of this issue. Um, the most important pages to me here, and especially I think 17 is one of my favorite pages that Jordy has ever done. And the... And what... Um, Dervla and him do in terms of the contrasting colors and the yellows and the pinks, I, I really love. Um, this is what both stories are coming to. The fact that Dahir has just had enough. Uh, we kind of set her up as someone who would definitely punch Emerson. Not even in other, other issues with kind of uh, her um, pride and her temper but also in the story that Celine told where she jumped in and immediately started arguing with the umpire and it makes perfect sense at this moment in the other stories that we know of Dahir and we know of her love for her family that she just full on just one shots Emerson and it was it was for me really important that every moment with Emerson was leading up to this it because I wanted it to be that cracking, satisfying um, kind of moment. And at the same time, we have the exact kind of opposite beat and feel on the other page, which is just Ava totally overwhelmed and lying in Viv's hallway, surrounded by the evidence of the life that Celine has led, that both Ava has never led, was never given the chance to lead, but also that she could possibly have a life like that later on. Um, I just, I love every picture here. I spent a lot of time staring at it. I think Jordy said that uh, some of the pictures were actually uh, inspired um, by his family pictures and the pictures with, uh, with uh, his baby, which I absolutely am just kind of honored by because uh, it's really beautiful when you get to see your collaborators really put themselves on the page and I mean Jordi and, and Dervla do that a lot in just their genius but it, in the intimacy of the story I think is really cool and um, 
it's kind of, I guess, for me, it feels like they trust me with the story to be able to do that, which is really cool. Um, so then we kind of swap full color palettes. Uh, thank you, Dervla, with kind of doing this kind of darkened, like kind of blue gray stuff because Dahir has kind of crossed the line at this point. Um, now this is, for me, I love this moment in any movie or book or story. You know, just that kind of total fail, uh, fail state moment. And that's really what the end of issue three is. It's the moment that starts the uh, starts the just total lowest point for our characters. We don't quite get it here, but this is this is the start of the descent uh, because once Dahir has has uh, punched Emerson, she obviously can't stay on the case. There's no way to cover that. Um, she was in the country club, his space. West can't lie for her. Uh, it's been pretty well established that they are not the type that feels comfortable doing that. And frankly, Dahir's grown and would not expect him to lie for her or expect them to lie for her. Um, and that's also then we have met Eleanor before, but on page 18 um, is where we start to see her power. She doesn't actually show up physically until the next page, but her immediately shutting down Emerson and immediately saying that the do be quiet is a moment of power shift in here. Um, it's a ratcheting up of power on like the chase's side because what is anyone going to do to Eleanor? Right? So this scene, uh, which kind of goes from page 19 sort of to the end, although again, we're just kind of doing like some split paneling uh, back to Viv's house. Um, was really fun for me to write. Um, I really like villain stare downs. Like I super love them. The moment where like a villain gets to like have their moment where they just show who they are really is enjoyable to me. Um, and I mean, this technically this uh, issue does it twice. It does it with Emerson where he goes off and basically loses in that beat. But on the flip side, Eleanor, who is way more in control of herself, way more in control of the world around herself, um, she wins here um, because there are no cards for Dahir to play. Um, but I wanted to make sure it was more than just a dressing down. I wanted to continue with the themes uh, and the ideas of motherhood that we've dealt with so far. Um, so we really, I, it was really important to me that this is a showdown, not just between the hero and the villain, but between two mothers who see things so utterly differently in the world where Eleanor is the type that what she gives to her child is a name and a wallet and he better not disappoint her. And I hear is like, if that's what you think motherhood is, like, that's a joke. Um, and this is about two wholly different world perspectives. Um, you know, at the same time, we also get... Um, and, you know, like some of this was in my script, but then some of this is definitely in the perspective that uh, Jordy told, uh, chose in this uh, part where as they're talking about motherhood, there is a focus on Viv, Celine and Ava as part of the same family, but also of Ava getting up, of Ava 
finding strength in that family and in that warmth and getting to have a moment where she can go into a room and they're making a dinner for her. And she's never experienced that before. She's a grown woman who, and like, this is real for a lot of people who came from really, really crappy backgrounds that this, some of this scene, which some of this night that she spends at this house, which is utterly overwhelming for her is overwhelming because she's never experienced care and warmth in this way before. Um, And so all of this is kind of happening where the definition of whose dreams matter um, and whose dreams are worth protecting, that question is explicitly being asked. And Eleanor's answer is very much hers, um, which is where we get that great splash page, uh, the last one, which is the real shattering of this family moment. where in issue four, uh, you will see what happens next um, as we have a mysterious figure coming in through the window. Um, but yeah, so we kind of covered most of the story. Um, I didn't really get to go in to as much as I would have liked, just like all the choices that uh, Dervla makes in particular in terms of, of color. I really, really love the... Um, just so much atmosphere is brought into this by what she does, uh, bringing the, bringing more of the page to light. And I love that. Um, I love watching Jordy's way of expressing like this mounting anger of these characters and, you know, the difference, like the lines of action versus like these, these super quiet moments and the way, like the way that they deal with shadow and empty space. Um, and I think it really lends strength to these characters that are every moment, either learning what strength and support are or redefining it for themselves. Um Thanks for kind of uh, going through the story with me. Um, I hope uh, that this was enlightening or at least interesting. Um, if you can, uh, please subscribe to uh, Comic Book Commentary. Uh, ben has put together a whole bunch of really informative uh, issues, both on the side of, uh, you know, tips and tricks of writers uh, and creators, as well as kind of deeper insight into the themes and action that they're trying to do. Um, And thanks. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Engineered and mastered by Alex Sarchet. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.